stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 2, set the context. Our shero of the last few weeks has been uh, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who after many uh, years of praying, finally received her son. And here she is finally giving him up, even at the tender age of three, to the temple service with Eli, the priest. And listen to how she responds to that moment as she gives her son up. Starting verse 1, First uh, Samuel 2 says, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more uh, so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up from the poor, the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and, and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail." The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of the anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Grass withers, flowers fade. Where the Lord stands forever, you may be seated. Back in the winter of 1996, uh, a man uh, named uh, Carnell Taylor was working with a paving crew uh, on Interstate 64 in Virginia, right on a bridge over the Elizabeth River. He and his crew were putting the paving down when it was really cold, it was icy on the bridge, and a, and a truck coming over the bridge lost control, uh, ran up to the crew, hit Carnell Taylor and knocked him over the edge of the bridge into falling 70 feet into the Elizabeth River. Uh, in, the, in the accident, in the, uh, him being hit, Carnell Taylor incurred a broken pelvis and a broken face bones. It was pretty serious stuff. In many ways, though, as he was hit, it was clear he would be powerless to take care of himself as he fell into the cold, frigid waters of the Elizabeth River. But meanwhile... Nearby was a barge passing by, and the captain on the barge, whose name was Joseph Brisson, actually saw what was happening. And Brisson um, not only saw what was happening, but made a split-second decision as he watched the man fall into the water. He jumped quickly from the boat and into the water to retrieve Carnell Taylor. He swam to Taylor 
in numbing water in order to rescue him. And he grabbed hold of him and he said this to Taylor, Don't worry, I got you. Don't worry, I got you. Brisson held Taylor's face above the water, found a piece of wood nearby to put under him so he could float. And uh, they both found themselves caught up in the current that was moving so fast that they couldn't get to the edges of the water. So they actually together, with Brisson's leg, put her, put her legs uh, wrapped around um, Taylor, they made their way down the river steadily while the barge followed behind. 30 minutes later, uh, Brisson's crew pulled him and Taylor out of the water and saved them from the river. Taylor, of course, was treated for all his broken bones. Brisson was treated for hypothermia. But everyone celebrated. Celebrated the courage of a man who was a hero, reaching out to a guy, or risking his life for a guy he'd never met, jumping into a very dangerous situation with a man who was trapped in a powerless way in the waters. Guys, that's what uh, we're going to look at today here in 1 Samuel 2. We're going to look at a case of, of, the, uh, of the shero of the Bible, one of the sheroes of the Bible, uh, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who uh, not only gave birth to the great biblical leader and prophet and priest Samuel, but also found herself prior to that in a state of powerlessness, in a state of childlessness and barrenness, as we've talked about the last few weeks. And what we want to do today is we look at this extraordinary text we find here that, by the way, finds its parallel in Mary's Magnificat that you heard earlier in Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at how she responds to God when he delivers her out of a state of powerlessness. So that's our question for today. When we are in the cold, swift waters of life and find ourselves in powerless situations out of our control... What does the Lord do for the weak and the struggling in that state? And what does he do with respect to those who are the strong and the together who are creating the weak and the struggling in many cases? And finally, what are we to respond with when God acts for us in our struggles with our own powerlessness? Well, let's get to the context. As we think through these questions, Hannah's been a childless woman for a long time. We're not talking about just a few years, probably decades is more like it. She's struggling with her powerlessness, and she did so in chapter 1 to the point of having a crisis. And the crisis was exacerbated, made much worse, by her sister wife, the rival wife uh, to Elkanah. That was, uh, Elkanah was married to two people, Hannah and Penina, and Penina would often make fun of and uh, deride, if you will, Hannah for her childlessness. In fact, she would, uh, she would make fun of the fact that Penina had many kids and Hannah didn't have any kids. And maybe she'd say some sing-song saying like, I got a baby and you don't have one. Well, Hannah is so hurt and desperate that she prays. And she prays to God in her powerlessness and asks him to attend to her. And she even gets finally the, the, uh, the priest Eli, the chief priest, to pray with her and agree with her in prayer. And sure enough, in due time, as we found out in chapter 1, God provided the very next year a child for Hannah and Elkanah uh, and calls him Samuel, who would later on be a, our next hero that's going to show up here in the book of Samuel. 
And when she does this, she also not only uh, uh, gets the blessing of actually receiving this child, she even gives him back to temple service. Remember, she comes through on this vow, this Nazarite vow that she made to the Lord in praying for Samuel. And she comes back with, with uh, Samuel at the tender age of like three years old and gives him over to the tabernacle service with Eli. It's a pretty amazing thing for her to actually give up her son. So really, if you look at the text, we're going to see her praying today. Praying again after she had given her son to Eli. Or at the same time, in another way to say it, celebrating as she did at the same time. So in a lot of ways, we find her praying at the beginning of her need, but also praying and praising after God had provided for her. And how does Hannah give over her only child at this point? Does she weep? Does she sob uncontrollably? Is she like the mother who gives up a child when they're going to college for the first time? <laughs> well, that would be understandable. But that's not, in this case, what Hannah does. Look at, verse, look at verse 1 in our text. It says, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. You hear that? She sings. She exalts. She has rejoicing going on to God as she gives her three-year-old son away to the temple service. In fact, really this whole passage is rich with praise to God with a lot of reasons to praise God within it. And what does she praise God for? Well, what he's done for her. And what God not only does for her personally, but the principle of what God does for all who are powerless, weak, and struggling in the world and who call on his name. So how would we summarize those things? Well, they are surprising rescues, unexpected deliverances. That's how God works and what we're going to see in this text. Surprising rescues, unexpected deliverances, because that's the way the kingdom of God works. We always have a vision for how things are supposed to happen, but God has the real vision that lasts. And he always does things we don't expect. He always rescues us in ways we don't expect. There are three surprising ways that God rescues in this text that I want you to pay attention to in our text today. And the first is this. Hannah praises God and actively rejoices over the fact that, that God has a surprising sovereignty in his upside-down kingdom. He sovereignly oversees everything. Second, Hannah praises God for his surprising rescues in his upside-down kingdom. And then third, Hannah praises God for his surprising king in that upside-down kingdom. Now, what you're going to find in this text is really fascinating. It goes back and forth between sovereignty and rescue. Sovereignty and rescue. God working greatly, God rescuing in, in amazing ways. So, let's dive in and look at how his sovereignty is at work in these first verses. Did you notice in verses 1 through 3 how Hannah praises God for his sovereignty and celebrates how God sovereignly rescues her in her particular situation from her barrenness. Not only that, she also celebrates that he's delivered her from her enemies. 
Now, of course, that might be an allusion to Penina, at least, but it's a plural, so there's something bigger here, kind of a cultural a shame that may have come in that time of not having a child that, that was kind of subtly said among people that was cruel in some ways, among other things. And she highlights how this works and how she finds joy in the midst of this. She says she exults in the Lord. Did you see that? She has strength in the Lord. There is no God like the Lord. You see how God's name, Yahweh, keeps showing up in this text as her way of enjoying God's sovereign hand over everything. It's in the sovereign Lord's hands that she has actually enjoyed this deliverance in her life. She didn't manufacture it on her own, is what she's saying. What does that mean for us today? Well, when we are struggling in trials and we feel like life's out of control in certain areas of our life, maybe the whole of life in some cases, when you feel like you're floating down a river and it's numbingly cold, the one thing you will inevitably come to grips with is that God is absolutely sovereign over everything. If you have a disease that won't go away, if your finances are taking hits that are out of your control with expenses and needs, if, if you have family members in your life who are really making life hard on you, God is probably pressing you at the very least to believe he is sovereign and that he alone can rescue you. In Hannah's case, she was praying against enemies who made her life so difficult in her barrenness. And she exhorts all of us who hear her song of promise not to let an important thing get in the way of our understanding, of our need, pride and arrogance. Did you see that in verse 3? Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. You hear that? We are not to uh, arrogantly think that we can handle life on our own. In fact, the Christian walk is one where more and more you realize you can't handle life on your own. You need a sovereign in your life. And more specifically, you need a righteous judge. That's what she highlights in our text. Here's why we don't want to live with any kind of arrogance is that we don't need God and his sovereign hand in our lives is that he's a righteous judge. In fact, later on in verse 10, she says that God will judge the entire earth. Now, often we like to think of God as the great lover, God the very kind, warm Lord, but never forget, he's also a great judge. A great judge who should be feared and that we should never be so familiar with him that we, we forget how powerful and how holy he is as the judge. He knows what you and I think. He knows what you and I are saying in secret. And the beauty of that is that he's righteous. Meaning he always thinks and says and does what is right, even though we are deeply flawed in what we think and say and do in our lives. Let me put it this way. If God is a righteous judge, that means he actually lives up to the very law that he calls you and me to follow. Why? Because the law comes from his very person and character. 
So when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemy, love, 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 in so many, uh, uh, so many ways, he's only telling us to do what he himself is already doing in his very person. He is righteous. And not only is he righteous in who he is, he's righteous in what he's going to accomplish. He's righteous in what he's going to accomplish. In his providential means, he is actually going to bring together his righteous judgments throughout the earth, even in our lives sometimes. And in his righteous judgment, he's always setting things straight the way he wants them to be, not necessarily the way we want them to be. And the way to receive that righteousness, the way to enjoy that righteousness from God in him and what he does even for us in our trial, in our struggles, in our powerlessness, is humility. Humility. To go low in the Lord. To let the Lord and his authority lead when he has a righteous way. So really the summary of the first few verses here would simply be this. God is to be praised because he is sovereign and judges and he attends to the humble of heart like a Hannah. And that, then comes the question in our text, well, how does Hannah understand how God judges in our text? Well, look at verse 4 and 5 in our text with me real quick. It says, the bows of the mighty, the bows, excuse me, of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. <laughs> Here's how God judges the proud. The proud who don't need him and don't look to his righteousness, who don't look to him for hope. He reverses the fortune of those who struggle and reverses the fortune of those who are proud. Notice the sharp contrast, how those who in our text actually had power, had military power with, with bows, you know, like bow and arrows, they're actually made to actually be broken. Whereas those who have nothing, who are weak, who have no strength, are raised up. Not only that, God raises up uh, the poor, uh, those who don't have resources, to the place that they have to work Small-time jobs. Well, what he does with the rich who are proud in their riches is he lowers them. And he raises up the poor to enjoy God's glory. Let me put it this way. Jesus summed it up like this. He that exalts himself above God will be humbled. But he that humbles himself before the Lord, he is the one who will be exalted. What does this have to do with us? Especially in a text where there's this reversal of those who seem to be all together, have the real power, have the money, have the resources, are turned upside down, and those who don't have the resources, they are actually raised up to glory. Well, there's three applications for us today that we need to take into reality. This text is all about God's justice. It's all about God's justice and how really, if you get right down to it, looking at Hannah's life, we all want justice. Every single one of us here, I don't care if you're a Christian or not, deep inside your heart, you want justice with things that you think aren't right or an experience that you don't think is right. Don't we love our movies with the underdog who overtakes the strong and powerful? Think of, uh, well, here's my generation, Karate Kid with Daniel-san. 
you know, sand the floor. Daniel's son takes on mean Johnny and takes him out in a competition. We love that. We watch the Star Wars series going back for decades, whether it's Luke Skywalker uh, or Obi-Wan Kenobi or now Rey. It doesn't matter who it is. We love it when they get and take over and win against the powerful enemy like Darth Vader or the dark, uh, or the, uh, dark side of the Force. In other words, whenever we go through hard times, don't you inside of your heart want to stick it to the man? I say that because all of us want justice in our hearts. But this brings us to the second practical reality of living with God's judgments and his works. I must give a, a word of warning as we have that impulse in our hearts to stick it to the man, to get somebody back, things like that, C.S. Lewis says it really well. When it comes to prayers like this, or if you go to the Psalms, or some of them are like, whoa, take out the enemy, you know, uh, do some really nasty things to him. When you pray those things, here's how we pray. You ready? Pray first as if you are the oppressor. Pray as if I am the one who is abusing authority. Start to examine yourself to see if we are the actual offenders. So husbands, parents, bosses, authorities of any kind here, a good prayer that comes with the dealing with the resistance of people or even God is this, am I actually an oppressor rather than a victim? The reason I say this is we live in a victim-based world, do we not? Where we're fed to believe we are the victim. We are the victim. We are the victim. But i got to tell you, we're not. Sometimes we are not the victim at all. We're actually the offender. But when we are the offender, here's what you do. You take seriously Hannah's prayer itself and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Come clean with what you have done so that you put the justice of God on Christ and rest on his righteousness at the cross, not on your own. Yet there are many here who are weak, who are being hurt in various ways, in different places in your life. And some of us say like red-blooded American men like me, have a hard time admitting weakness. Hannah readily admitted her weakness before the Lord. But what you need to know is that admitting weakness is actually part of the Christian walk. It's actually part of following Jesus. That in fact, weakness is not sin, but it's admitting our inability, our limits. It's admitting that we're not enough. It's admitting that we need somebody to get it right for us when we aren't up to the task. Weakness, in other words, is being poor in spirit, to quote Jesus in Matthew 5. Weakness is powerlessness where you come to the end of yourself. And the real gospel is that maturity in the faith is embracing weakness, what we aren't and what we'll never be where we come to the end of ourself, realizing we aren't enough. 
You know what's even more gospel? It gets better. Not only coming to the end of ourselves, we're not enough is, a, is really growth, but it gets better. God enjoys that moment with us. God enjoys that moment with us, and he actually loves it when we come to the end of ourselves, and he can come in and save the day and be the hero. That's the thing about American culture and even American evangelicalism and I say reformed evangelicalism. All of our stories tend to make us look like the hero. But really, the scripture teaches plainly again and again, God's the hero. We're not the hero. We never are. God's the one who comes through. God's the one who rescues us from the cold, flowing waters of our culture and our moments in life where we feel powerless and at the end of ourselves, that's exactly where he wants us. Individually, in our families, and as a people. And the beauty of this is Hannah, in our text today, is praising God that he sovereignly reverses outcomes and blesses the weak. He rescues the weak from the proud. Hannah's prayer, you see, is a little like Joseph Brisson rescuing Carnell Taylor in that river. Brisson, when he jumped in, swam to Taylor, put his legs around him, grabbed him, found something to float with together. And he said this, don't worry, I got you. Don't worry, I got you. That's what God says to you. When you feel powerless, that's when you go, Lord, with your prayer, with your cry, with your hurt, with your disappointment, whatever it is, and listen to God say, don't worry, I got you. I got you. God is regularly doing this in our lives. Not just the first time you become a Christian and receive Christ. It's a life of God show, coming, letting you come to the end of yourself and telling you, I got you, don't worry. Hannah's praise doesn't stop with this wonder that God's got us. She not only admits her, uh, her need on her knees, but she comes to pray about how God expresses his sovereignty in people's lives. And this is shocking, too. This is kind of that reversal of God's sovereignty at work in verse 6. Look at this amazing thing. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes the poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. See that? It's God who is sovereignly in control of what you have for money. He's God who is sovereignly in control of what you have in life, in your health, and everything. God is sovereignly in control of everything, even the life of this church. And the wonder of that is how he works in the midst of that. Did you notice in verse 6 this really cool thing? The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. You know what he's talking about there, guys, don't you? He's talking about resurrection. That's right. People dying and going to Sheol, the place of death, and being raised up. That's resurrection from the dead. And the wonder of what he's seeing is being resurrected from the dead is that it doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter where you feel really powerless with your money, your family, your marriage, your parenting, your vocation, whatever it is, while things may feel like death to you and may actually be death to you, guess who's in charge of resurrection? 
And if you sometimes lose hope that resurrection is possible in the waiting, let me tell you, you can have hope of resurrection in this way. There is a Christ who is alive right now, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, who is sovereign over everything that goes on. And he's alive. He made it through death. That is your rhythm in life as a Christian. Every day, every season of life, every challenge where you feel powerless, it's death and resurrection. Humiliation and exaltation as a life of learning what it's going to be like to taste heaven one day in a new heavens and a new earth with a new body. The beauty of this text, guys, is there is this constant reversal in this text. This reversal of what happened to weak people when God delivered them. Remember the Lord did incredible reversals on his enemies throughout Scripture. Think of the Israelites in Egypt. They were dying in slavery. God resurrects, if you will, metaphorically, and not only delivers them, he, he, he destroys their enemy, and they even leave with a bunch of spoil. They had nothing, and they left with everything. Think of David, an obscure shepherd boy who takes on Goliath, and who even has to endure a wicked king in Saul, and God raises him up to become the king of Israel. Think of Gideon going from a farmer to an actual general of Israel's army. And he didn't even want to be general. And they end up asking him to be king, and he refuses because he knows the real king is coming. And if I could apply it today, the reversal that we all are longing for is for abortion to be eradicated. That's what we all want. Because we know there is a weak one in the womb of a mother who is facing crisis along even with her husband or, or boyfriend or whoever it is that is crying out for justice, for the right thing to be done. Hannah prays for this great reversal and praises God for these reversals. And it's amazing how death seems to be followed by resurrection in the way God works in our lives. So what feels like death to you and me, what sometimes is actual death to you and to me, God can redeem and turn into resurrection in ways you and I could never envision or dream. That's how big he is. That's how glorious he is in what he does. What does this look like for us today? Practically, you need to know there's always a reversal when it comes to our chief enemy, Satan, and his cohort. Now, we do have this uh, enemy of sin in our souls. We even have the enemy of the world and worldliness, which can sometimes show up even in church. But God, in his grace, promises to overcome Satan as our enemy. And sometimes even Satan working through people. There's a Christian I've worked with in the past uh, 14 years here at Redeemer who went through a terrible trial in their workplace. They worked for this um, boss they had who was really literally oppressive, manipulative, and difficult, making life really hard in every way you could imagine. 
And this, this Christian was struggling with this. Not just for a few months, for years. This Christian went to the bosses of this person and begged for help, and the bosses were either reticent to do anything or afraid of the person themselves. This person had that much power. So what happened was, over time, God did an interesting reversal in this Christian's life. You know what that reversal was? <laughs> he brought in a new boss over all the bosses who was more powerful, more savvy, even on some level more insightful about this person, this wicked person that was oppressing the Christian and eventually had them let go. I celebrated with this person multiple times, this Christian who's in our midst, because God delivered this person from the wicked in a very practical way. And guys, he could do that with you. Wicked people show up in our lives sometimes. And the beauty of this text is God will eventually reverse. God will eventually resurrect. In moments that seem like death, he will come through and deliver. So, this is how God takes down his enemies. He turns things around on them. If an enemy in those scriptures are actually bringing power with military power against God's people, God brings a power that's crazy bigger than their military power against them. He turns the tables in ironic judgment. He meets power plays with infinite power in himself. And he can do that for you and for me. And guys, the good news of the gospel is this is what will happen for us when Jesus comes back one day. When he returns in the second coming, he will overcome all his enemies, everything, once and for all. And that is our great hope. Even in the midst of waiting, struggling, feeling powerless in various ways in our lives. So the question today is, how? How in particular will God bring his justice in the world? How will he do it? Will he be like kind of today's politicians? We're going to bring the goods with military, with economy, with new programs, with this, that, and the other. <laughs> nope. Kingdom of God is very different than human solutions and human effort. The interesting thing in our text comes in verse 10. Look at the second half. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. You know what the Hebrew word for anointed is? Messiah. You know what the Greek translation of Messiah is? Christ. Here Hannah is predicting that the way God will bring justice into the world is not men's political means, although God can providentially do things. Nah, it's through the Christ. It's through the one true Christ, Jesus, who would come into our world. And just think about how Jesus worked in our world, even as a great king. Did he come with fanfare? No, he's incarnated into a poor teenage family. Just think, how did Jesus handle his ministry? Did he raise up the crowds and, and get people going and say, vote for me on this day or, or make me king? No, he actually said, I don't want you to make me king. And he goes out and he serves people, even washing the feet of his disciples. 
This is the upside-down king doing the upside-down kingdom work. And then it gets even crazier. How does he deal with his people who actually are messy sinners, full of junk and injustice themselves, can be oppressors in the process? How does he deal with them? Does he crush them with power? No. He dies on a cross for you and for me. Who would have thunk it? Who would have guessed it? And how does he overcome the last enemy of death that all of us, even this text alludes, alludes to so clearly, and all of us will face in some real way, he is resurrected from the death so, so that he overcomes death through his death and in his resurrection. This is the upside-down king doing the upside-down kingdom work for you and for me. You see, it goes to show, right off the bat, practically, you and I can never guess what God's up to. Stop trying. You can't read providence, or at least you're limited in what your understanding of providence is. God's hand is always mysterious and powerful, and he throws us curveballs regularly we just don't expect. But that's good, because usually... That's the kingdom at work. Usually that's God at work in powerful ways in our midst. And Jesus wants to rule over our lives today and make a difference in us so that we will do the ironic, unexpected thing. You ready for this? We'll trust him in faith. And what does that look like? You give up your life so you can gain it. You give up your life so you can gain it. Jesus calls us today to believe on him, to give up in humility, admitting our powerlessness in its many ways and calling on him to save us in his unique way and time. Trust him, Redeemer. Trust him as a church. And you can do that in three practical ways. These are the last things. You ready? Number one, remember. Remember what he's done to save you before. Look back on the last 14 years as a church, how God has saved you personally, how he saved people in this church you know, how his salvations have worked throughout our midst. Second, wait on the Lord. So here's the thing. When change comes, usually we want to get busy. That's the sign of an activist who usually feels like they have to fix things. Well, stop trying to fix. Just be. Wait on the Lord. Let's see what happens. Wait on the Lord to provide. Wait on the Lord for wisdom. Wait on the Lord because he's the one who's the true pastor of this church. Third, as you remember and wait, just like Hannah, do what you're called to do. Sing. Sing. That's what this is. This is a song. She's singing. With joy the Lord for his deliverances, for his surprising rescues. Sing to God in his sovereignty and what he's done for you and who he's given you and me in Jesus Christ. Sing. Praise him for what he's done. This morning, Elizabeth and I were praying together, and then I went up and spent some extra time with the Lord and and I started thinking about this sermon. I, I couldn't help but be, forgive me, uh, a little nostalgic, remembering 
how God has saved us as a church? Most of you don't know that when we started this church 14 years ago, 14 and a half, um, we were looking for a place to meet in Union County. And Union County at that time, even to this day, does not have many places for 100 plus people to meet and worship. There just aren't many. So what I did, along with a team of folks from Redeemer, is we went around to several schools, and we were eyeing elementary schools because, well, frankly, elementary schools are squeaky clean, really nice and beautiful. <laughs> so we went to these elementary schools here in the area, <laughs> and we went to one after the other, and, and here's what all the elementary principals said. I kid you not, they said, we'd love to have you come and be a part of our school. To be fair to elementary school principals, they're very possessive, protective of their facilities. Guys, after looking at warehouses, elementary schools, a whole host of things, I got to tell you, I panicked. I started praying with the team, and I was like, man, where are we going to meet? We got, like, people, we're getting ready to ramp up our worship here in just a few months. Where are we going to go? One day we decided, why don't we just drop by Sun Valley High School? So we walk in Sun Valley and we meet the principal, Janet Tyson, who, by the way, is a pastor in the area now. <laughs> Janet Tyson walked us up and down these halls. And she said, you know, Union County is growing so much, we need more churches here. Why don't you guys come and be a part? I'll tell you, that day I about got on my knees, kissed her feet, danced. It was an amazing moment because we were striking out one time after another. God saved us. When we felt really powerless, like no, 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 he finally gave us the one yes here. It's been our home for 14 years. Guys, God's going to do the same thing for you in, in your life and with us. Our job is to trust him. Our job is to believe that he's going to walk with us through change, through all the things he's doing, and believe that he will deliver to a more glorious end than you and I could ever imagine. Sing, because our God is that kind of God. Let's pray. Father God, we